Good morning. It is good to be here at not 1146, as the clock in the back says. It's always good to get that extra hour of sleep that you don't take advantage of, right? Yeah, every year it's like, we're going to go to bed early. We're actually going to take care of that. No, we're not. I do want to say uh, to the middle school class, uh, this morning we talked about self-control, and I, I bore my soul to the class this morning and let them know that I struggle with self-control around donuts. And uh, it wasn't until I walked into the lobby and Neva handed me a box of donuts that we had brought for Link, or Riley's birthday this morning that one of the kids from the class saw me with a box of donuts. I practiced self-control and I didn't have any donuts yet. <laughs> April 2014, I'd reached uh, one of many potential breaking points in my spiritual life. When we talk about breaking points, I, I, I see scripture as, or I, I see my spiritual life rather as something like a muscle that uh, you work out and you lift weights to strengthen that muscle. In the process of doing that, you actually tear microscopic tears in a muscle. I point at this muscle because that's the only muscle I think actually ever gets big. But uh, this, the microscopic tears happen, and as they heal, they get stronger, and your, your muscles become stronger. They're able to lift more. And faith uh, is very similar to that because you have these times and trials that happen that, that test your faith, that, that you grow from and you learn from, and you're able to grow in that faith. But there are times where those trials and temptations may stretch that faith too far and it may break. And that will require a lot more healing, a lot more time to heal those tears. This moment in my life was one of those potential breaking points. The world around me was sucking out the joy and the hope that I had I felt hopeless as I looked around at the pain and suffering and rampant acceleration of the acceptance of sin in culture. See, I worked at a news station in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was surrounded by the bad news. That's what we thrived on. That's what we wanted to give to the viewers because that would make them watch more news. If it bleeds, it leads. That's the saying in news. I thought, there's got to be something better than this. See, I was surrounded by people, though, in that newsroom who didn't share my beliefs on faith, and they didn't share my beliefs on politics. And, and see, that's where the struggle came in, because I thought at the time that the only answer to the issues in society was politics. I felt alone, and I felt hopeless. I had been working for the past few months, though, at an inner-city mission work for our congregation that we were worshiping at. Uh, the, the, it was in downtown Cincinnati. We met in a... Uh, a recreation center in this community. Uh, it was called the Cincinnati Urban Ministry Outreach, or CUMO for short. I knew that I was struggling spiritually, so I threw myself into serving rather than being served, hoping that it would help restore my hope. It surely made me study more. It forced me out of my comfort zone of just sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. But, it started, but I started going through the motions with that service work as well. Something was still amiss with my spiritual life. 
In our marriage, we had bills. We had an apartment lease, a small apartment that, was, that lease was soon going to be up. The cost of living in the area was not conducive to our finances. We had a baby uh, on the way soon, and, and all of these worldly things were weighing heavy on me. As the provider for this home, my goal was to make sure that Sarah could stay home with the kids and not have to go to work. But it seemed like we were drowning. Frustrated at our political and cultural climate, I lashed out on social media as one does. And I got a private message that changed my life. Ryan Shear was the youth minister for Sarah one of the summers that we dated at church camp. I put it in quotes because it was like one or two weeks of summer that we actually saw each other because she lived about two hours away and we didn't have smartphones back then. Ryan was a great youth minister, probably one of the best youth interns that her church had in the time that, uh, that I knew her uh, while she was worshiping there. And he still is a preaching, he's still preaching to this day. He left youth ministry to, to get in the pulpit, and he's now preaching in Indiana. But he, he saw my post on Facebook, uh, and he reached out to me on April 7th, 2014. He said, I haven't read it yet, but I'm planning to, and I would suggest that you get a copy of the book, The Derision of Heaven. It's, it uses the book of Daniel to talk about the things devout Christians are and will be going through and how to deal with them. I thought, oh, that sounds good. So I thanked him, and I put it on my want-to-read list on Amazon. It's the list that captures all the things that I want to read but never actually will and probably won't actually buy it. If you have an Amazon list, you know what I'm talking about. A month later, though, another frustrating post goes out on Facebook, and Ryan reaches back out. He says, hey, have you got your hands on that book yet? Obviously not. No, I, I haven't. I, I downloaded the preview, though. Two months later in July, I purchased the book for a camping trip to Michigan. I had reached the point where I had to do something about this depressing, crippling lack of hope and purpose in my life. And as you do when going camping, especially in the state up north, I scouted ahead of our trip to find a spot near our campsite that I could steal away to and study. Luckily, our campsite had a path that led back into the woods, down alongside a nice bubbling stream that was flowing into the lake that sat about 150 yards away. It was peaceful. It allowed me to sit there in my folding camping chair and read. And I got into that commentary. I got into God's Word, and I connected with Him in a way that I hadn't probably in years. And so I read the book of Daniel. And after one chapter in this commentary, I wrote to Ryan and I said, started the book today. Chapter one is done and already feeling a thousand times better. The next week, Ryan followed up and asked if I finished it and if it was helpful. And I told him I was about halfway through. But yeah, it had been a fantastic help. And I was planning to teach this uh, at Kumo as well as a Bible class in the future. And then the words came out. Pray for me. I feel a strong tug on my heart to go into ministry. July 15th, 2014. I started teaching that class at Kumo in the fall. I had hope. I had a fire. I had a passion for telling others about the hope that I better understood in the sense of my relationship with this world and my purpose. I am but an exile in today's Babylon. I need to be more like Daniel. I need to answer the call of Matthew 28. So I devoted myself more to the study and teaching others of the Bible. I'd say that post on Facebook changed my life because what would happen over the next year 
to this day still baffles me. I went from a Christian struggling with faith and hope in a TV newsroom in Cincinnati to a Christian full of hope and fire, leaving the newsroom behind while being given a chance to preach. Sorry. To preach from the pulpit of a small congregation in northeast Cincinnati. I get emotional because I don't think I can properly put into words the shift in life that that was. It is today. Like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my study in the book of Daniel. I mean, I, I hopefully would be in the world, but not here right now where I'm standing. You see, I know that God's word is from him. I know that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I know it's true because the Bible teaches it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and it's because I've lived it. It certainly is transformative. The gospel transforms us into a new creation through the waters of baptism, but your life, your journey in this life isn't over at baptism. It's just beginning. There's still work to do. There's still learning that has to happen. There's still growth that needs to be accomplished. So this morning, I'd like to share with you one of the many lessons that I took away from my study in the book of Daniel that truly changed my outlook on this world and my role within it. And it stems from the title of the commentary that sparked the change that I needed, The Derision of Heaven. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Psalm 2. We should really start stocking tissues up here when Derek preaches. One of the things that I struggled with most back in 2014, and, and oftentimes now, is just how wicked the world is. And the hopelessness that I feel as a Christian who seemingly has no chance to fix it at all. Ask my wife, I'm a fixer. I, I like to fix things, not necessarily around the house, uh, but things in life. When she's had a bad day or she's struggling with something and she, she confides in me, my first inclination is to fix it. Give her some unsolicited advice on how to make it better. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. Now, I remember one time I opened my mouth to do that and she put her hand over my mouth and said, shh, I just need you to listen to me. Church, that is what God did to me in my study of Daniel. He essentially put his hand over my mouth and taught me through his inspired word that I need to just listen to him, that he's going to fix it because the fix has already been put in place. I just have to trust and follow Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Basically, God's saying, these people, these kingdoms, these, these rulers who set themselves against me, they're the laughing stock of heaven. And then he says that he has a king in Zion. He's not talking about David. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the king that will be established. He goes on in verse 7, I, I will tell of the decree 
The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our world leaders read that verse and took it seriously? If I could summarize the book of Daniel, that psalm does a pretty good job of laying out the plot and idea that is seen throughout the book of Daniel, and that is that God is sovereign over all things, especially the unfolding of history in spite of ungodly rulers, ungodly societies, ungodly cultures, or those who are oppressing God's people. Whether it's how Nebuchadnezzar was brought to his hands and knees, literally, the arrogance of Belteshazzar, or, or Belshazzar, Belteshazzar was Daniel, Belshazzar, the ruler, or the oppression of Antiochus. Every king in Daniel ultimately proves no match for God. If any ruler rebels against the authority of God and his son, who is king, that is Jesus, the second psalm says that he is mocked, mocked and derided by the one enthroned in heaven. Now I set that stage to now take us to Babylon. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, and let's talk about Babylon. Babylon was the most remarkable society, community, city, nation, culture of antiquity. It's a, it was a, a San Francisco or New York or London or a combination of all three of the antique world. Greek historian and geographer Herodotus, who was known as the, uh, the father of ancient history, who, he documented a lot of stuff. He once visited this great metropolis, and he said, in magnificence, there is no other city that approaches to it. Babylon's roots go back almost to the dawn of civilization. Its beginning was with a mighty hunter. His name was Nimrod, who conquered men and made them his unwilling subjects, according to Genesis 10, verse 10. And from those humble beginnings, it eventually evolved into the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which lasted from about 614 to 539 B.C. And it is a prominent figure throughout Old Testament history. Babylon was mighty, both in size and in influence. The city of Babylon straddled the Euphrates River, about 50 miles south of what is now modern-day Baghdad in Iraq. In fact, if you go on Google Earth and you go to Baghdad, you zoom out a little bit, move south, you'll see the ancient ruins of Babylon that are still there to this day. They have been excavated, some of it rebuilt, and it uh, is still visible today. Herodotus claimed that the town was laid out in an exact square, about 15 miles on each side. And the historian suggested that the city was surrounded by a moat more than 260 feet across, and behind that moat was a massive wall some 75 feet thick, 300 feet high, with 15 large gates of brass on each side. One of the prominent figures of this illustrious city was Nebuchadnezzar's Hanging Gardens. These were constructed for his Median wife, who was homesick for her hill country environment. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world one that is no longer visible. Scripture documents the influence and fame of this community. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, it's referred to as great. In Isaiah, in chapter 13, verse 10, it's called the glory of all the kingdoms. In chapter 14, verse 4, it's called the golden city. 
In chapter 47, verse 5, it's referred to as the lady of the kingdoms. Jeremiah, chapter 51, verse 13, says that it was abundant in treasures. If you're getting the picture, it was a pretty awesome place to the world standards. Surely something this impressive, rich, and glorious could last forever. To appreciate the significance of Babylon's greatness, especially as we consider the prophecy that we find in Daniel chapter 2, we have to understand Israel's history as well. After leaving the captivity of Egypt, God intended the nation of Israel to be a theocracy. In this kind of government, the Lord God would be king, and he would rule over a kingdom of priests in a holy nation, Exodus 19, verse 6 said. The law of the land came from God to Moses. It was Moses' special job to carry out God's commands, to teach the law, and to settle disputes. Now, after a while, this became too much for one man, and so Moses appointed judges to do some of this work for him in Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 26. You can already see how the kingship of God is starting to shift into control of man. Very slowly, but it's starting. Sadly, though, the Israelites were not good citizens of God's kingdom. When they entered the promised land, they didn't keep their side of the bargain. God had promised them victory in battle, but only if they obeyed his commands. But the Hebrews lacked faith, and they started worshiping other gods. They failed to drive the Canaanites out of the land and made peace with unbelievers in Judges chapter 2. A faithless Israel was a weak Israel. And when the mighty Philistine army threatened their new borders, the Hebrews rejected God as their king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. They wanted a king like the kings of the nations around them. God granted them their wish, but only because he wanted to preserve his chosen people. And he warned them that life would not be rosy under an earthly king. For 120 years, the kingdom of Israel was ruled by earthly kings, 40 years at a time, in Saul, David, and Solomon. And I'll throw Ishbotheth in there, son of Saul, and the two years that he sort of led, though he was unanointed. And then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes over, and after three years, the kingdom splits into two different kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The northern kingdom was bad. There's no glossing over it. It was It was bad. They, they didn't really ever have a good king. They, have one, they had one king in there that was like, eh, kind of okay. But everybody else was bad and turned away from God. And God's judgment came in the form of the Assyrian Empire, who came in and completely wiped out the northern kingdom, just obliterated them. Uh, but the southern kingdom was spared that tragedy. And you, we can read about that in Isaiah chapter 37. But due to her progressive apostasy, Judah was on a collision course with Babylon. The prophets warned that if Judah continued her rebellion, Jehovah would raise up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as his servant to punish the wayward Hebrews. Many of them would be killed. Others would be captured and taken away as prisoners by the marauding Babylonians. Jeremiah chapter 25 verse 9 details this. Nebuchadnezzar, however, would not be commended or rewarded for this endeavor. Rather, after he took over Judah, the Lord would punish him. And the Babylon regime would commence a journey towards oblivion. Jeremiah summed up the history of this affair in the following way in Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 17 through 18. Israel is a hunted sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And now at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. 
Therefore, thus says Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will punish the king of Babylon in his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. See, Babylon took over Assyria. The king of Assyria suffered at the hands of Babylon. Babylon was a servant of God. God gave them the power, gave them the authority to do so, and now they were coming after Israel. And once they got Israel, Judah, Babylon would see the same thing happen. In 605 B.C., the first deportation of Israelites to Babylon happens. And that's where the book of Daniel begins. As these young men of royalty, of high stature and nobility, are taken from their home in Israel and transported to Babylon to be put through three years of indoctrination and brainwashing to become like the Babylonians. Why the history lesson? Well, there's a lot that goes on in the Old Testament that I think sometimes gets glossed over. But the details of them are often really important in trying to understand Scripture and trying to understand prophecy and trying to understand how it applies to us today. It's important to know that Babylon was, in worldly standards, amazing. There was plenty of wine, sex, and debauchery to go around. It was not only acceptable, but it was promoted and practiced openly in the whole community so that the whole community could participate in some way, especially in the wealthiest classes. It's a perfect example of society and culture that we see around us today. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. And Solomon, the author of those words, knows better than anyone else just how futile the things of this world are and why God is the only answer to hope, peace, comfort, and contentment. It's also equally important to understand this history of Israel and the history of Babylon to understand the 9-11 moment that Israel experiences at the start of Daniel. Israel believed they were untouchable because they were God's people. He'd given them the promised land. He'd led them out of Egypt. He was the one who was always there to get them out of sticky situations. But they treated God like the friend they always call to get out of trouble. But when they don't need him, they ignore him and forget he exists. That's not a friendship, is it? If we had a friend like that today, we certainly wouldn't call them a friend. That's not how relationships work. Now, many of the adults here remember vividly the events of 9-11. You remember where you were when you heard or when you saw. You remember what you were doing. I remember watching the second plane hit live on CNN as I walked into second period U.S. government class with Mr. Gallagher. Worcester High School in Worcester, Ohio. I remember playing softball that morning and how wet my shoes were because of the dew. I remember the shock of feeling, how could this happen to us? We're America. We're untouchable. See, this was my mindset in 2014 still, that America is so great. We have all these freedoms, freedoms that I perceived were being taken away. We had safety from foreign enemies. We had all of these great things. How could it be so bad culturally here? Well, the problem is that America is not immune to sin. In fact, it's just as bad here as it is anywhere else, maybe more so because there's more freedom here to allow it to continue and thrive. America is not a theocracy, nor is it God's chosen nation just because we put in God we trust on our money. Imagine the feelings of abandonment and hopelessness in Israel that their life 
their culture, their home was being destroyed. Where was God to protect them? Why didn't he warn us? I would say it was worse than our experience of 9-11. But they were warned. Multiple times. Jeremiah told them that it would happen if they didn't turn to God. Instead of listening to him, they mocked him and tried to kill him in Jeremiah chapter 26. The Israelites disregarded the prophetic warning because they could not bring themselves to believe that God would allow his temple and throne to be destroyed. Read the book of Jeremiah. Set that as a goal this week, and you'll see just how oblivious the people were. They doubted that God would not protect his dwelling place. After all, God had relented. God had preserved the city in the days of Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19. Wouldn't he do the same now? Would God no longer honor the covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 16, where God said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Would he abandon the covenant that he made with Abraham? The kingdom of Israel turned their back on God while believing that he would still have their back. God, God did not turn his back on Israel. Israel turned their back on God. It is hard to protect someone when you're standing behind them and the enemy is in front. Their mocking of his prophet turned into a captive punishment to preserve them and lead them back to him. But Babylon was not the final answer. She was a temporary solution that was part of a bigger plan of preserving the remnant of God's people. And in Daniel chapter 2, we see exactly what was going to happen to bring about an eternal kingdom, something that will give us hope. In Daniel chapter 2, we read about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation. In the first 13 verses, Nebuchadnezzar challenges his magicians, his sorcerers, his wise men, uh, to, to tell him this dream that he had and interpret it. Now, the key element to this is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't tell them the dream. He said, you tell me what I dreamed and then tell me what it means. No one's, no one's capable of doing that, right? And, and the sorcerers and the, the, the wise men, they said as much. They're not, we can't do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill all of the wise men. He was going to kill them all, take them all out. And Daniel's like, hold on, let me talk to him. And so God reveals the secret of the dream to Daniel in a night vision in Daniel chapter 2, verses 14 through uh, 23. And then Daniel goes to the king and he explains that God has made known to him both the dream and the interpretation. And he tells the dream and he gives that interpretation in verses 31 through 49. If you're in Daniel chapter 2, let's start there in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone, by the way, is, think of it as a pebble. 
Not, not a big rock, but a, a pebble that broke this great image. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the, king, the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and in, into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you rule them over them all. You are the head of gold. Just buttering him up. You are the greatest. You are, you're the head of gold. By the way, you get destroyed. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, that crushes. It shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. These are really finite details that is in this. Verse 43, as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, here's the key, verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. The king had seen a great image. Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet mixed with iron and clay. Perhaps this image of this great thing encouraged Nebuchadnezzar to build the great image of himself in Daniel chapter 3 that he tried to make the people bow down to. But the great image was destroyed by a small stone made without hands. The image represents the rise and fall of four world empires. The stone representing a kingdom that God would set up, not man. The king praises God then. In the, in the remaining verses, he exalts Daniel along with his three friends, puts them in positions of power, gives God glory, even though the interpretation that Daniel gave him was dire to the king and his kingdom. The interpretation literally said, your kingdom will fall to another kingdom. And then all of those kingdoms will be destroyed by that, that stone. There are certainly two key thoughts expressed in this chapter. One, God is a revealer of secrets. He's a revealer of great mysteries. And God can make known the future and bring it to pass. But of particular interest to us ought to be the kingdom found in verse 44, which the God of heaven himself shall set up, which shall never be destroyed, but consume other kingdoms, and stand forever. Several questions I think naturally come to mind when we think about this. Number one, when would God do this? When would God set it up? Number two, has it already been set up as foretold? And number three, if it has, and if it shall never be destroyed, well, that, that opens up the door to three more questions, I think. Where is it now? What is the future of the kingdom? And how can we be a part of that indestructible kingdom? Well, let's start with the first. When will this kingdom be set up? Verse 44 says, in the days of these kings. 
Daniel describes the image as depicting four kingdoms which shall rise and fall. The first one we know for sure is Babylon. Daniel chapter 2, verses 37 through 38 says, You, Nebuchadnezzar, you, all of these great things that you are, you are the head of gold. Babylon is the head of gold. Now, world history, if we take Babylon as the starting point, world history confirms that the next three kingdoms would first be the Medi-Persian Empire, represented by the chest and arms of silver, followed by the Greek Empire, represented by the belly and thighs of bronze, and finally the Roman Empire, represented by the legs of iron with the feet mixed with iron and clay. And we could go into a history lesson about Rome and how Rome would eventually split off and do different things, and you can see how they fit into the feet and everything like that, but we're not going to do that this morning. But when you take the image, all four of those kingdoms, with the gift of hindsight and, and Holy Spirit inspiration that we have of the Word, we can look back and see that the indestructible kingdom was going to come to pass in the days of the Roman Empire. When John the Baptist began preaching in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, this was during the days of the Roman Empire, and he says, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or within reach. It's near. Jesus proclaimed this also, adding, The time is fulfilled in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. What time was fulfilled? What time was complete? Well, God's time was fulfilled. God's time was complete, and it's the time that's outlined in Daniel. It's the time that has been prophesied throughout the Old Testament for the coming of the Messiah. The time has come. I'm here, Jesus is saying. So the indestructible kingdom was to be set up in the days of the Roman Empire. During the Roman Empire, both John and Jesus knew of its established, but not only that, but God knew of the kingdoms that would come and go as part of his plan to restore man to him through not an earthly king as Israel desired, but a heavenly king of a heavenly kingdom. Which leads us to our next question, which is, has it been set up as foretold? During Jesus' earthly ministry, it was at hand. It was near. It's what both John and Jesus proclaimed. But after Jesus' death, after he died on the cross, his disciples were struggling. They were still looking for the kingdom. Joseph of Arimathea in Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 51, was looking for the kingdom of heaven as he was preparing Jesus' spot for burial. He believed the teachings of Jesus, that it was at hand. But after Christ's death, the question swirled through their heads. How could the king... The Messiah, the Son of God, that many of them proclaimed, how could this king that is supposed to protect us, supposed to take us out of bondage, how could he die? How, why is he gone? During the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, it became more and more clear to his disciples that Jesus' teachings were not related to an earthly kingdom, but they still needed guidance. Following Jesus' ascension, the Spirit is poured out on the apostles, just as Jesus said it would in John chapter 16, verse 13. He said that the Spirit would come and lead them into all truth. And from the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until this day, the kingdom of heaven is now here. It has been established just as God said it would through Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation. 
Additionally, when we look throughout the rest of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, says that Jesus is far above all principality, above power, above might and dominion. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, says that everything has been made subject to him. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, tells us that he is ruler over the kings of the earth. Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27, tells us that he rules over the nations with a rod of iron. That calls back to Psalm 2 a little bit too, doesn't it? He truly has all authority in heaven and on earth as he himself proclaims in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And this supports what is revealed later in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, Daniel reveals a vision where he sees one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, which refers to God. And he is given dominion, glory, a kingdom which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel 7 says. Now, compare that with Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Daniel describes the ascension from a heavenly perspective. Look at Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? That Jesus, who was taken up from you in heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Later, the Spirit would reveal that Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, that he was in power. Daniel is describing this ascension from a heavenly perspective, and Luke is describing it from an earthly perspective. They don't contradict each other. They're written hundreds of years apart from each other, and yet they complement each other perfectly to show that this prophecy, this centuries-long wait for the kingdom of heaven to come, it's, it's been done. It's been accomplished. It's clear then that the king has received a kingdom, the king being Jesus, that the indestructible kingdom was set up when he returned to heaven. But one might naturally ask then, where is it now? Well, the answer is found when we consider the nature of this indestructible kingdom. And we have to remember some important elements of this. The kingdom was described by Daniel as a stone that was cut without hands. It was cut off from a large mountain, okay? And then it became a great mountain itself and filled the entire earth. Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 through 35 reveals this. Without hands suggests that it's not your ordinary kingdom. It's not the kingdoms that the world were used to, kingdoms that were set up by man, accomplished by the work of man. Also, it would start small and then grow larger. Now, compare this to what Jesus taught about the nature of his kingdom. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, not man-made, not fitting the examples that we see in kingdoms around the world in his day and as we see today still as well. But in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, he said it would start small like a mustard seed and grow to encompass the earth. Thus, the indestructible kingdom would be spiritual in nature, not physical in nature. And it would have humble beginnings, starting small and spreading rapidly. This kingdom involves the church. 
It involves those who are in the church, who are called the church, ecclesia, the called out. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, Paul writes this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul tells the uh, Christians at Colossae that they were part of the kingdom. They were in the kingdom. Likewise, those at Thessalonica, according to 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, and the seven churches in Asia that are found in Revelation. Indeed, all Christians receive their part in this indestructible kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12 discusses this. Verses 28 through 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you want a reason for being in worship, for worshiping God, let this be your reason, because we are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That should drive us to want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Because those of us who are gathered here today, who are Christians, according to what God's word says, we're a part of this kingdom. And we're also fulfilling the statement that this kingdom would fill the whole earth. Because here we are in Round Rock, Texas, on the other side of the world from Jerusalem, where the church began. And here we are, the church, citizens of the kingdom that have been foretold by Daniel. Whoever is willing to repent and believe the gospel according to Jesus' words in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, they're part of the kingdom. Those who believe in the gospel will then obey his commands, and, which includes Christ's command to be baptized according to his words, recorded in Mark 16, verses 15 through 16. Those who do this can be a part of the kingdom that Jesus established when he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, that leads us to another question. What's the future of this kingdom? Well, I think it's pretty easy, right? Daniel is pretty clear. It's going to last forever. That's what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 44. It shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. As the writer to the Hebrews stated, a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The angel Gabriel, as he's telling Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, that she was going to have the Son of God, the angel Gabriel says, of his kingdom there will be no end. Daniel prophesied it. The Hebrew writer confirms it. And the angel Gabriel brought a message to Mary saying the exact same thing of the son that she would bear. At Christ's coming, the future of the kingdom says that it will be delivered to the Father. It will still continue forever, but it will be delivered to the Father. Paul taught this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 through 26. In summation, he says, when Christ comes, he will deliver the kingdom of God to the Father, having put an end to all rule, authority, and power physically. Until then, Christ shall reign until all enemies are placed under his feet. Right now, until then, until Jesus comes and it is delivered to God, Christ reigns until all enemies are placed under his feet. The last enemy, though, being death. This is where Christ is right now. He is reigning as king over in an indestructible kingdom at the right hand of God. Jesus himself taught this in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43. At the end of this age, his angels will gather out of the kingdom all of those who cause sin and all the lawbreakers. And then the righteous will shine forth, it says. They'll shine forth his glory on the earth, his light to the world, reflecting his light reflecting his light to a dark world. We are lights of the world, Jesus says. 
in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. This isn't a command to go out and be a beacon. It's saying this is what you are. This is who you are in Christ. We're reflecting his light to a dark world in need of truth, in need of hope, and in need of salvation. As we approach an undoubtedly tumultuous time ahead of another presidential election, it's important to take Eric's lesson last week, along with the lesson today, to take it with you and consider your role in a democratic republic, to use your instruments for righteousness, to trust God because he's in control, that no matter who is in office, if it's God's will for the nation of America to fall, it will fall. But our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven should never waver. Our hope in this life should solely be put in the true king of the kingdom of our citizenship, not in elected officials, not in men who have man-made kingdoms, but in the king who rules forever. The Bible tells us that we are merely sojourning here. Until we go home to be with the Father for eternity, we are just exiles in this world. Wherever you may be, whether it's America, Zambia, Thailand, wherever you may be, if you are a Christian, you are a part of a greater kingdom than anything this world has or ever will create. There's no coincidences in the Bible, especially when it comes to prophecy, and certainly not so when it comes to the will of God. Jesus regularly referred to the old law, the old covenant, as a shadow of the things that would come. The Old Testament points forward to the new. The experiences of Israel point forward to the coming kingdom. John chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 5, the opening of John's gospel account, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That was true at the beginning, and it's true today, and it will be true at the end. In the garden, man sinned. They were walking with God. They were living in utopia. They were living in a perfect situation. Sin came in and stopped that. God gave them over to free will, but he desired for them to maintain a relationship with him. God worked for thousands of years to make sure that man would come to him and still have a relationship with him. His desire, it says in the Bible, is not for any man to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Not to live outside of him, but to be with him and in him. Now fast forward from the garden to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac. A covenant was made, a promise that God cannot and would not break. And so his people, the people of Israel, were preserved time and time again, a small remnant at times, but a remnant no less. And the reason why that remnant was constantly kept alive was so that Jesus would come out of Israel, which would fulfill, would fulfill the commitment to Abraham. It would fulfill the commitment to David that the kingdom would be established through their lineage. After leading them out of Egypt, Moses received the law and gave it to God's people. The theocracy had begun. Moses' face shone with the glory of God. But Moses hid that behind a veil. He hid that, that light 
behind something. And that veil would then be put in place again to separate man from the presence of God in the temple and within the tabernacle. God gave them everything they needed, but it wasn't enough for them. Oh, it was enough in God's eyes, and it would have certainly been enough for them had they just followed and trusted him. But to them, it wasn't enough because they were comparing it to the world. They said, we need a king. You're not good enough, God. We can do this on our own. We need to be like everybody else in the world and have an earthly king. God was king. He was ruler of Israel. He was over Israel. He was the center. But that wasn't what everyone else had. They wanted to fit into the world's standards. Now, eventually, their disobedience leads to years of captivity under the rule of earthly authorities that God gave power to in order to preserve the remnant of Israel enough so that that rock, that, that pebble that was not cut by human hands could be hewn and begin to grow as an indestructible kingdom, ruled not by an earthly king, but one once again restore the heavenly kingdom that has been intended from the beginning. This is where the Jews got off track with Jesus because they were expecting an earthly king in the Messiah. Why? When the prophecies were, I mean, we could look at them now in hindsight and say the prophecies were pretty clear. This wasn't going to be a physical thing. This is going to be a spiritual thing. This is going to be beyond what, what we can really understand in, in, in physical terms. Well, the reason why they expected and wanted an earthly king is because that's what they wanted. That's what they always wanted. That's what they wanted from the time that they split from God and said, we want an earthly king to the times of Jesus. They said, this can't be the Messiah because this guy can't do it. He can't cut it. He's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? What we want and what we need are two very different things sometimes. And I'll tell you, that's become very apparent as a parent. When your kids just want chicken nuggets all the time, but you really want to give them something healthy to eat, that's what they need, but that ain't what they want. And they will cry and kick and scream until they get their chicken nuggies. The same is true for us. We think we know what we want. We think we know what we need, but God knows better. See, that's where I was in 2014. I thought I knew what I needed. I thought I knew what I wanted. Well, that's exactly what it was. It was what I wanted, not necessarily what I needed. I thought in worldly ways about faith, about righteousness, about my purpose. I realized, though, through my study of Daniel, that I am a citizen of a heavenly kingdom first and foremost. The veil that separated man from God, the veil that Moses put between the glory and the people of Israel, the veil that was put there because of fear, that was torn in two at the cross. And through Christ, I am redeemed and share in an inheritance along with Jesus. As such, the glory of Jesus that shines so bright is to be reflected by me in the world, not covered up by a veil, not covered up by a basket. A lamp shall shine forth, a city that is set on a hill, not hiding the light. Moses hid the light again because of fear. And many today still hide their faith today for the same reason because they're afraid of what the world will say, because the world wants it one way. And I'll tell you right now, the world doesn't want it the way God wants it. It's been that way from the garden, and it will be that way until Jesus returns. Hiding the light isn't helping anyone. It's not helping your neighbors. It's certainly not helping you. 
I'm not saying that you go out today, start trusting in God, and immediately you're going to become a preacher. That was the path that God set before me. He opened the doors, and I chose to walk through them. But wouldn't it be great if we would put our trust fully in God and not the things of this world and start doing the work of disciples that Jesus set out before us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, in Matthew chapter 5 and elsewhere, to be the light of the world, to be the salt of the earth, to share the good news of Jesus with the lost and dying world. Understanding that we are citizens of an indestructible kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, and merely ambassadors of that kingdom in our short time here on earth, because we're exiled here. Even though we're exiled here, that doesn't mean we assimilate and we start doing the things of the kingdom that we live in here on earth. No, we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We don't do what the Israelites did. They lived and tried to live as people of the world, ignoring the blessings and the comfort of God. Tonight, I hope you'll come back and and join us for worship because our youth are going to lead us tonight and the three young men uh, who will be presenting a lesson, are presenting lessons, uh, sharing examples that are found in the book of Daniel as to how we can live as exiles in in today's Babylon. I'm looking forward to that time, and I hope that you will come back and and, uh, take part in that and and encourage these young men as they've worked hard on these lessons. But they're going to be sharing lessons that apply the other lessons that we see in Daniel. But if you're here this morning... Perhaps you're not a part of that heavenly, eternal kingdom because you haven't answered the call of the gospel to believe, to repent of your sins, to confess the name of Jesus and be washed in the waters of baptism. Jesus says that nobody gets to the Father except through him. He is the establisher of that covenant. It was through him that new covenant was made, and it's through him we get to the Father. It's through him that we gain access to an eternal kingdom We are joined with Christ in baptism, according to Colossians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 6, amongst many other verses. But if you have not obeyed the commands of Scripture to be baptized, according to the way the Bible tells us, because perhaps you've obeyed instead the commandments of man, just like the Israelites wanted to follow the teachings and doctrines of men, to have an earthly king, to have an uh, earth-based kingdom and not a spiritual one. Perhaps you followed man-made doctrines and you haven't obeyed the word of God. If you're here this morning and you need to make that correction, if you need to put on Christ in baptism, put to death the body of sin and be raised to walk as a new creation in the kingdom of heaven, don't wait another day. Don't wait. If you know that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that's your starting point. Our life doesn't stop after we get out of the waters of baptism. We continue to learn. The Great Commission says, go therefore into all the world, make disciples. You make disciples first. That means you teach them the teachings of Jesus. You teach them the commands that they need to obey. You obey those commands in humble obedience by being baptized in the waters of baptism. And then Matthew 28, 19 says, continue teaching. Continue teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. The starting point is believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died on the cross to take away your sins And that there is a heavenly kingdom that you become a part of that will never be destroyed, that gives you an eternal hope that you you know is never going to go away. It gives me goosebumps thinking about that. If you desire the prayers of the church this morning or you're struggling with sin in your life and you desire to repent 
and you need the assistance of our shepherds, or if you just, if you have any other need, really, that the church can assist you with, we offer up an invitation that as we stand and sing this next song, that you can come forward to the front and make those requests known, and we will be here to pray for you and support you because that's what the kingdom does. So if we can assist you with those needs or anything else this morning, won't you come while we stand and sing?